yourself. Good morning, church. Thank you all for coming together to worship the Lord with us. I just want to say real quick uh, to all of you church members out there that I really love you guys and miss you very much. And I really look forward to uh, getting to worship again together uh, here in the church one day. Uh, this place is really empty and dull when it's just me and Matt and Robert in here recording all of this. So I look forward to and, and the day when we can all be together again and, and hope you do too. Uh, but I am going to open us up today with our call to worship. And there is an underlying portion in it. So if you haven't already, pull out your digital hymnal and pull up the call to worship. That digital hymnal will be your guide for the rest of the service as well. All of the liturgy, the songs we're going to sing, uh, Matt's sermon notes, I believe will be in there as well. Um, everything you need is going to be there in the digital hymnal. So if you would, go ahead and pull those out as we do our call to worship this morning. All who thirst, come to the water. Come all who are weary. Come all who yearn for forgiveness. The Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, has washed over us. And our gracious and holy God beckons and blesses us. Drink deeply of these living waters. Glory to you, O Lord. Glory to you. Let's pray. God, we come to you today uh, with hearts that are excited and ready to worship you. Lord, hearts that desire to, to know you more, desire to feel your presence, desire to be close to you, to be with you. And Lord, I pray, Lord, as we come today, that where our hearts, where our um, desires, where, where we are just not to that point, Lord, we know um, uh, that that's just not the, the way that we would be described. Lord, I pray that you would uh, grant us grace uh, to bring us to that place, Lord, to a place where we desire you, to a place where we long to worship you, long to sing your praise, long to read and study your word. Bring us to that place, Lord, by your grace. Make up the difference, Lord. Supply our need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. By His mercy we 
have been born again because Jesus Christ is alive no grip of fear no stinging death because Jesus Christ is alive by God's great mercy we have been born again because Jesus Now it's time for us to come and confess our sin before God. This is our time of confession. And this is a time for you, uh, not just to listen to me uh, confess my sin. But this is a time for you, for, for the whole body together, to confess before God our sin, to call upon Him for forgiveness, because He's the only one that can forgive. Like, uh, like when David writes in the Psalms, uh, he says, uh, Before you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. Uh, that is not implying that, that other people aren't affected by our sin, that, uh, that other people, we can't wrong them when we sin, but it is to, to imply that what makes sin so grievous and so worthy of damnation is that we have sinned before a holy and righteous and just God and therefore deserve His wrath. And so during this time, I want you to recognize the reality, the, the, the weight of your sin, uh, and bring it to, to Christ who is, is gracious and willing to forgive if we confess. So let's bow our heads and let's confess our sin together. God, we come today to confess before you that we are sinful. Lord, we confess before you uh, the fight that we feel within us, uh, the same as the Apostle Paul and Romans, that so often the, the things that we wish we were doing, the things that we want to do, the things that we have a godly desire to do, we fail to do. And the things which we know we ought not be doing because they are part of the old man who we used to be before Christ are the things we so often return to, like a dog to his vomit. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us. I pray that we would feel the weight of our sin, recognizing that it is not something that you just pass by. It's not something that you just forget about or that there is no consequences for it, but that Christ bore on our behalf the penalty for our sin. That is, He has been punished for our sin so that we might be justified. And Lord, it is on that basis that we call out to You to forgive us, to cleanse us, to sanctify us, Lord, and to mold us more into the image of of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now that we've confessed our sin before God, it's time for us to remind ourselves of the assurance of pardon that we have because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So church, be encouraged today through this assurance of pardon. Take comfort in the assurance that even those things that are hidden from memory or are too deep for our words are not beyond God's forgiving love. God, who knows us completely, bestows pardon and peace. Thanks be to God.
this point in our service, we're going to take a moment for our giving. And here at Redeemer Fellowship Church, there are multiple ways you can give. You can give by going to our website, evansvillechurch.com giving. You can give that way. You can give via text message by texting Evansville to the number on your screen. That'll shoot you back a link. You follow that and you can give that way. You can also give through the Redeemer Fellowship app. If you haven't already downloaded the app, you can download that. Give right there on the app. Three super easy ways that you can give and that you can worship God by giving back to Him out of the, the blessings that He has already given us. Uh, but before we do that, I have an offertory prayer that I'm going to read for us. And it does have underlined portions, so if you would, read the underlined portions along with me. Ever-giving God, source of all goodness and charity, your ear is always open to our needs. When we cry to you, you are faithful and provide for us. With joy we bring our thanksgiving. For all your mercies, we return to you from our abundance. All that we give, we dedicate to your glory. All that we keep, we commit to your care. For we are only stewards of your bounty. Bless what we give and what we keep. For all is your creation. Amen. I'm Pastor Matthew Castro. I'm the pastor of uh, teaching and vision here at Redeemer Fellowship Church. And we're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 through 34 for our sermon today. The sermon is entitled, Who is the Captain of Your Soul? Who is the Captain of Your Soul? And uh, I want to read a poem as an introduction by William Ernest Henley called Invictus. He writes, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever God's may be, for my unconquerable soul, in the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bulging of chance, my head is bloody, but I'm bowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters now not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. In our culture today, we celebrate people who defy the odds, conquer the naysayers, overcome challenges, becomes masters of their fate. When we think about the symbol of success and wealth and fame, there's no better symbol than MJ, no better symbol than Michael Jordan, the, the jump man, right? The, 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 the symbol that, I know as a kid, I had a hat with the jump man uh, logo on it. Uh, there's football teams and baseball and basketball teams with the jump man on their uniform. It's a symbol of success, a symbol of wealth, a symbol of fame. While we may not admit it, people like MJ are our heroes. They set the model for work ethic and success. ESPN writer Wright Thompson wrote an article, uh, Michael Jordan has not left the building. He says most people live anonymous lives. When they grow old and die, any record of their existence is blown away. They've forgotten some more slowly than others, but eventually it happens to virtually everyone. Yet for the few people in each generation who reach the very pinnacle of fame and achievement, a mirage flickers immortality. They come to believe in it. Even after Jordan is gone, he knows people will remember him. Here lies the greatest basketball player of all time. That is his epithy. There's a fable about returning Roman generals who rode in victory parades through the streets of the capital. A slave stood behind him, whispering in their ears, All glory is fleeting. Nobody does that for professional athletes. Jordan could have, couldn't have known that the closest he'd get to immortality was during that final walk off the court. All that can happen in the days and years that follow is for the shining monument he built to be chipped away, eroded. His self-esteem has always been, as he says, tied directly to the game. Without it, he feels adrift. Who am I? 
What am I doing? For the past 10 years, since retiring from the third time, he has been running, moving as fast as he could, creating distractions, distance. Michael Jordan, in his 2009 Hall of Fame uh, speech, said the game of basketball was the place where I've gone when I needed to find comfort and peace. But he asked the question during this article, uh, this interview that he had with Wright Thompson, who wrote the article in ESPN, MJ says, how can I find peace away from the game of basketball? In the world, status is tethered to performance, to wealth, to what is earned. Our intuition tells us this is the path to peace, comfort, and refuge. If we achieve our goals, if we work really hard, if we have a good year at work, if we have good grades, our soul will have peace. So many of us rationalize our time commitments, our life decisions based off this intuition. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. I must chart a course to peaceful sea. Yet these things on their own are simply counterfeits to peace. They are friends to pride and greed, not peace. Peace for your soul is not found in the boardroom, the vacation house in the Hamptons, or the positive feedback from a from a professor. MJ never had peace. Triumph and fame, yes, but not peace. The only place peace for your soul can be found is in Christ, at the cross, on the cross on Calvary. Gaining the world is a pile of smelly poop in comparison to the treasures in Christ. The main idea for this sermon is if you are rich in God and you cherish the treasure of God's kingdom, then you do not, do not be anxious for abundance in the things of earth. If you're rich in God and you cherish the treasure of God's kingdom, then do not be anxious for abundance in the things of earth. The context for this passage is, is as we mentioned last week, in the beginning of chapter 12, a large crowd of people have surrounded Jesus as they debated as he, Jesus debated with the Pharisees, thousands of people have surrounded Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees. He speaks directly to his disciples to beware of the corruption of the Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. He says, beware of their hypocrisy. They have developed a system that has made them to be perceived as righteous men of God. But they care for their own comfort, and they refuse to confess Christ. God's Son and Messiah before men. Their comfort, health, and wealth is more important to them than their love of God. Their respect before others and titles of honor are more important to them than their love of God. Jesus insults them in Luke eleven thirty nine. Now you Pharisee, Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. He later describes them as unmarked graves. They're spiritually dead. People will not notice the deadness of your soul. They won't notice the deadness of your spirit because you look like you're righteous. You look like you're people of God. But in actuality, you hate God and you're far from him. But people won't notice this. God sees the inside. He sees the heart. God sees the heart. He sees the heart of these Pharisees, that they're very far from God. They love their comfort. They love their status. They love their honors. They love their titles, but they do not love God. So kind of the main point of this sermon, seek the treasures of Christ's kingdom, not the treasures of the world for rest for your soul. Seek the treasures of Christ's kingdom, not the treasures of the world for rest for your soul. So we see here in our in our passage today, and I will read it as, as we kind of go through this, instead of reading it all at the beginning here. So the theme of this passage, he's still talking to the same audience, the same crowd, but his the theme of his teaching is greed and possessions and money. So Jesus moves from hypocrisy to greed. He warns the disciples to be on guard against greed and materialism. While some are deceived to believe and embrace wrong views about God and Christ and God's word, others are deceived in trusting wealth as the source of their salvation. 
So the passage before, when he's talking to the Pharisees about their hypocrisy, or talking to the disciples about the Pharisees and their hypocrisy, the root issue there is false religion or false views or believing in wrong views about God, Christ, and God's word. So here, the deception, the sin, is trusting wealth as the source of salvation. Kind of sub-point number one, life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And this is verses 13 through 15 of Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell me my brother, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So a member of the crowd, the same crowd that we are introduced to in verse 1 of chapter 12, a member of this large crowd interrupts Jesus' teachings. Jesus had been teaching about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, talking about those who, um, who do not fear God, do not uh, uh, confess or, or um, make or acknowledge Christ before men talking about the, the Holy Spirit and those who uh, blasphemy and those who are against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. As he's teaching, this member of this crowd interrupts Jesus' teachings. For a, to ask Jesus to rule on a personal matter, to fulfill his own materialistic desires. And Jesus answers him, he says, Man, who appointed me judge or arbiter over you? He wants Jesus to judge his feud with his brother over their father's estate, arbitrarily ruling in, the, in, in this rude interpreter's behalf, to force the brother to divide the inheritance, to share the inheritance. We don't know much about what's going on. We don't get a lot of details about this, the, the case. But obviously this, 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 this brother feels like he did not receive a fair share of his father's inheritance and believes that his brother, maybe his older brother, should divide equally the inheritance. He goes to Jesus, who's a, a teacher, a teacher of the law, he, he perceives, a rabbi, a holy man, a righteous man. He wants him to rule on his behalf. However, and he wants Jesus to rule that it's God's will and the morally right thing to do for his brother to divide the inheritance with him. However, Jesus, the Son of God, did not take on sinful flesh to come into the world to be a judge of estate cases or cases on inheritance or wills. The chief purpose of Christ's mission was to proclaim the kingdom of God and to proclaim the good news. The, the passage, which I, I said a long time ago when we first started Luke, Luke chapter 4, verse 18, that this is really kind of the thesis statement to the ministry of Christ. And really the thesis statement of the entire gospel of Luke. Luke 4.18 The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and because, of he, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is why Christ came into the world. This is why he took on sinful flesh. This is why he left heaven to come to earth, to live amongst us, to be human, not to rule on arbitrary cases of estates or inheritance and material possessions and wealth, but to proclaim the kingdom of his Father, to proclaim his kingdom, to proclaim the good news of the gospel, to set the blind free, or to set the sight to the blind and set the captives free. Not settling estate cases or judging for income inequality or judging on any other mundane matters involving earthly possessions. This is not why he came. As if Jesus is some type of hero of political socialism, a kingdom for material fairness. That's not why he came. He came to bring salvation for sins, not salvation from income inequality or material fairness. You know, the, the kind of the popularity of Bernie Sanders' uh, campaign for president, the last two that he's done, is that there's a sense where there needs to be 
uh, material equality or income inequality, especially because a view that, that there's a lot of income inequality or wealth inequality in the United States. And that could be true. That may be proper to, to say that, that there is inequality. But greed can come in different shapes and voices. You don't have to be wealthy to be greedy. And what this person is wanting Jesus to do is his greed and his covetousness of, over this inheritance is his concern, not his concern for God's word or for salvation for his soul. So Jesus says, take care, be on guard against greed. Jesus doesn't rule or judge the matter of the inheritance. He doesn't even talk about it. Instead, he speaks to the sin of greed to the entire crowd. He takes the opportunity to teach on the sin of greed. Greed, a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions or to possess more things than other people have, all irrespective of need. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5.10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, not he who loves abundance with its income. Money will not satisfy. Greed will not satisfy. And Jesus says, beware of greed. Beware of covetousness. The issue with greed is false worship. And Jesus even says, life is more than abundance of material possessions. Life, purpose, meaning is not, is not satisfied or content by achievements of abundance of wealth or by the abundance of wealth. And you can, you can define abundance in different ways. We primarily talk about it as in wealth or money or possessions. But there's a, other degrees of wealth or abundance. Those are abundance in, in materialism or in wealth and money. Some are abundant in skills and strength than others. Some are more abundant in romance and love and friendships and, and friends. Others are more abundant in opportunities. They tend to have more opportunities that are provided for them, either for work or for other areas. Some have abundance of respect by others and honors from others and trophies and networks of people. The issue with all these things is if they become the objects of worship, the goal in life. Jesus has said there's more to life than abundance. There's more to life than having things having wealth, having possessions, having other types of wealth. There's more to life. Because what you're saying is, if you make this the goal of your life, then it's your object of worship. And God is the only one that deserves worship, or our worship. You know, it's interesting, when I went to Scotland, and you go and visit all these castles, you get taught by the kind of the tour guides that these castles that were built were not very comfortable. Like, these medieval castles were pretty drafty. They weren't very comfortable to live in. And why they were, well, because they were, they were built because they were symbols of wealth and power. So if you had a, another uh, royalty member from a different country and they came to your, to your nation, you would take them to your castles because you wanted to show them the symbols of your wealth and your power. We do this even in, in our world today. Uh, Kylie Jenner, who is, the youngest self-made billionaire ever. In an article uh, when this was announced, the, uh, the writer said, what are you doing with your life? Comparing her success at her age with your achievements. Like, you guys look at her. At her young age, she's able to make a billion dollars and earn a billion dollars. What are you doing with your life? Too bad you don't have the same work ethic as her, the same ability as her. We tend to compare people's success with our own achievements. We look to the status of wealth and the respect that comes from wealth. That it's a ticket into certain uh, societies and networks and social groups. There's a, um, a psychologist at Princeton named Alec Todorov who talks about and did a study on impressions of people, that when you're given a, a picture, if, there's, if that person is attractive or beautiful physically, it gives you a positive impression on the person. And this perception 
It even goes so as far like when a jury looks at a defendant, and if that defendant is attractive looking, they're more prone to rule in their favor. That we they end up interpreting data or interpreting evidence in favor of the person based off their perception, their immediate impression of the person. So when we notice someone who is wealthy and rich and successful, we tend to attain, we tend to give them a, a quick impression, a, a, a quick uh, impression that this person should be respected, that this person has status. This person should be listened to. And so now Jesus, he, he kind of prefaces this and introduces this topic of wealth and money and, the, and being aware, being on guard against greed, and that life is more than abundance. And he follows that up by giving a, a parable or, or, or providing a parable. He told them a parable about wealth. The second sub-point is, is wealth in God is the cure for the soul. Wealth in God is the cure for the soul. This is verses 16 through 21. So he told them a parable. This is Luke chapter, chapter 12, starting in verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. He tells this parable about a, a rich man. And the land of this rich man produced plentiful. It was very productive. It was a good year of crops. He's, he was able to produce a lot of grain, a lot of food for himself. He was in abundance. He was in wealth. And his barns, his storehouses, were unable to store all his profit, all his grain. Though he thought to himself, this wasn't a quick decision, isn't it like he rushed into this? Isn't it? He considered, he planned, he, he spent much thought and planning. He made the decision to destroy or to tear down his smaller barns and build larger new barns to fill his profit with. It's interesting here. He, again, this is, it wasn't like he was quick to make this decision. He thought about it. Maybe he asked for other people's advice. He thought about this. He considered it. He, he asked himself some questions. He did some pros and cons. And he made the decision that he was going to uh, destroy his old barns and build new ones and fill them with his profit, with his grain. Not give his abundance to the God or give it to the poor. Instead, how can he use his abundance for his own benefit? This is what he considered. This is what he spent much time delegating over and thinking through and planning and organizing was to benefit himself alone. And he says to his soul, this is an interesting part of the parable. He says, I will say to my soul, the rich man says to his soul, after he builds these barns and fills them with his profit, he says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink. Be merry. His reason for peace, he, he informs himself, he encourages himself. His reason for his peace and his comfort and his rest is his wealth, his abundance, his profit, his gain. He tells himself he can relax and be at rest because of his great harvests, his great abundance, his great wealth, his great glory and power. His wealth is the cause for peace to his soul to remove any signs of anxiety or stress or worry. This is the cause for his peace. This is how he informs himself. This is how he, he removes anxiety or stress or worry. It's his abundance. The signs of all his labor and his toil and all his hard work. That's what comforts him. But a new character is introduced in the parable. But God said to him, he said to the rich man, a new character is added to the story. God calls the man a fool, not wise, not faithful servant, not good hard worker, not child, not beloved son, or any other honorable or respectable title, but a harsh title, a title of insult. A fool is a mindless, ignorant, and stupid person. 
the context of all your wealth that surrounds you and you're comforting yourself by your wealth and abundance, you're a fool and you have been deceived. It's so interesting, right? Because in the context, he's surrounded by wealth. He's surrounded by status and most likely the, the respect and honor that comes from that wealth and that status and that abundance. And he is titled, he is and proclaimed by God as a fool. Surrounded by his accomplishments, his trophies, his glory, his wealth, his status, his means of respect and honor, God calls him a fool. And, Jesus, and God says, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whom will they be? The sin was you forgot about God. If you knew about God, and you remembered God, and you loved God, you would not have built new barns and filled them with your abundance, and that's where you would have gotten your comfort. You would have trusted God and provided for the poor or gave to God. You're not simply accountable to yourself, you're accountable to God. He will judge what you do or don't do. He sees all. He has the power to kill the body and cast the soul into hell. Your labor or your goods do not protect you from judgment. There is someone outside of you who will hold you to account. There is someone outside of you, outside of us all, who holds us to account, who is the true captain of our soul, the true master of our faith. So the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich in God. Every person who follows the same course receives the same fate. You're not the captain of your soul. You're not the master of your own fate. If you're poor in God, there is no rest for your soul. There is no relaxation. There is no peace. And you're a fool to, to, think, to think you can bring peace to your soul, to the treasures of this earth. That means by which your soul is brought to rest, and your soul will be judged, and you're actually poor. The way that this verse ends in verse, the parable ends here in 21, is that the true wealthy are those who are rich in God. And those who are poor in God are actually the poor. Tranquility is only for those rich in God, not those who are rich in abundance or rich in wealth or rich in possessions. Who has claim to peace and joy? That is the question. Who has claim to peace and joy? Is it the wealthy? Is it the ones who have massive barns and massive profit? Abundance in, in, in relationships and status and honor? Are those the ones that have claim to peace and joy and tranquility? Or is it those who are rich in God? And Jesus kind of continues in verse 22 to answer that question. Point number three of the sub point number three. It is your father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. Verses 22 through 32. It is your father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. An important thing to remember here and, and kind of just think about and ponder. Is the wealthy are those who are rich in God and their souls and their souls are at rest. Not those whose wealth is in possessions, who has their soul at rest, whose soul is comforted and at peace. But those who are wealthy in God, who are rich in God. Your life is not defined by what you have or what you do not have. It is defined by your relationship to God. A.W. Tozer said, what, is, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. If who you are and what you are is based on what you have in this world, then you do have calls for anxiety. And that's what he talks about here in 22. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Even then, you're not able to do as small a thing as that. Why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither soil, toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory will not be arrayed like one of these. But if God so closes the grass, which is alive in the fields today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little, for it is your father's good 
pleasure to give you kingdom or give you the kingdom. Because you're not the captain of your soul, the master of your fate, God is the master of your fate. And if you do not believe in him, if you do not confess the son of the son of the son as Lord, you're an enemy of God. If you do not confess Jesus Christ as Lord, if you don't put your trust in Christ, you're an enemy of God. He has demand over your soul. And this is a cause for anxiety. But if you're rich in God and you have no, you have no need to be anxious about your life. And Jesus provides several reasons why you should not be anxious. Right? He tells the disciples in 22, don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about what you will eat or what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. He says, don't be anxious about these things. Don't be anxious if you lack these things or you desire more of these things. Do not be anxious about these things. Don't be worried about these things. And he tells you why you shouldn't be anxious. Your intuition is to be anxious, to worry about the future, to worry about what you do not have, to compare yourself to others, to compare your lack of abundance with other people's abundance. But God, Jesus says, here's some reasons why you shouldn't be anxious. Let me give you some reasoning why you shouldn't be anxious. He says, consider the ravens. Consider the birds. They don't sow and reap, but yet God provides for them. And you're far more valuable than the birds. Consider the lilies of the field. Even Solomon doesn't look as gorgeous and attractive as the lilies of the field. And you're far more valuable than the lilies of the field. If you're more valuable... Why do you fear he won't take care of you? Why are you anxious about what you do not have? Why are you anxious about the future? If God provides for the birds, the ravens, if he provides for the lilies, why not trust him? You're far more valuable than they are. Anxiety doesn't even provide anything for you. Here's the other reason. It doesn't even provide anything. It doesn't, you can't even benefit from anxiety. It can't add a single hour to your span of life. You, you, your effort, your, your accomplishments, your trophies, your work ethic, you can't purchase one hour to your life. Your strength cannot lift it. Your beauty cannot obtain it. Nothing about you, nothing in this world can add an extra hour to your life because that's completely under the sovereignty and providence of God. So you on your own, you're, you have no ability to add one single hour to your life. If, therefore, since you can't add in the smallest thing, why worry about the rest? Why be anxious of the rest? That's the fallacy of your intuition. That's the fallacy of intuition of thinking, well, how do I know? How can I trust this? I'll just trust in myself. And by doing that, we're full of anxiety. We're full of worry. And that's why Jesus says, consider for a moment the birds and the lilies and your inability to add an hour to your day. Therefore, why be anxious? Why be worried? If you're rich in God, why be anxious? If you're rich in God, why worry about what you do not have? Why worry about food or clothing or about anything? Trust in your Heavenly Father. Trust in, in God. He will provide for you. He's provided for the birds. He's provided for the lilies. He will continue to provide for you. You can't even add an hour to your day. Why be anxious? Why be worried? And Jesus says, you, little, you have little faith. Because if we had faith in God, we wouldn't be anxious and we wouldn't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't be greedy. He knows what you need. Therefore, seek his kingdom. As I said before, there's different forms of abundance here. There's different things to covet that others have. Again, it could be relationships. Those who seem to be like always, or the guy or the girl who's always surrounded by friends, always has something to do on the weekends. There's different forms of abundance. There's different forms of things to be coveting. We have to ask ourselves, is, what is the object of our seeking? What, are we, what consumes our thoughts? What are we anxious to require? And for a lot of us, those are the things that cause us anxiety because we are desiring to and consumed with thought 
And our seeking is to be abundant in certain things that we lack, that we desire. Even relationships or marriage or careers or money or a house are all treasures of the world. But Jesus says, don't seek those things. Seek his kingdom and he will provide for your needs. And think about the implications of that, that command. Seek God's kingdom. Seek his kingdom. May that be your chief concern. Your chief object is God. And he will provide for your needs. He will provide for your, your, your money needs. He will provide for your shelter needs. He will provide for your relational needs. Do we trust God to provide those things? And our intuition says no. Our intuition says, I have to take care of this on my own. I have to consume my thoughts with obtaining this. And Jesus is saying, consider, think over, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. It says here in 32, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What does it mean? What does, it mean? What does his kingdom mean? When he says, seek his kingdom, what does he mean? His kingdom was obviously not material possessions. That's why Jesus didn't come to proclaim how to become wealthy and rich and money. He proclaimed how to be righteous before God. And how do you become righteous before God? Faith in Christ Jesus. Through Christ, you have his kingdom. If you seek his kingdom... It is God's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. You don't have to doubt that if you seek it, he won't provide it. He, it's his pleasure. It's his desire to give it. And what is his kingdom? It is his righteousness. It is his holiness. It is his adoption. It is his justification. It's eternal life. It's his love and his peace and his joy. And his pleasure is not to give you treasures of the world. That is not his good pleasure. His good pleasure is not to give you the treasures of this earth that are distractions that lead us away from him and are not worthy and not valuable in comparison to his kingdom and his righteousness and the treasures of his kingdom. Since he has given you his wealth, don't be anxious. Since he has given you his kingdom, don't be anxious. You're valuable to him. You're, he's given you his kingdom. It's been his pleasure to give you his kingdom. And since you're rich in God, and, you're, and your rest and your peace comes from your relationship and your trust in God, I love how he ends this passage here. For it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. You're free to give. Since you're free of anxiety, since you're free of having to care for your own needs because God provides them for you, he provides everything that you need because you've trusted in his kingdom, because you're rich in God, you're rich in Christ, you're free to give. What relaxation, what tranquility, what peace comes from being in God and in Christ? Free to give to those in need. You're full of generosity. You're free to be generous not held back by worry or anxiety. And that is typically why people don't give. They fear giving. They fear if they give from their storehouse, if they give from their barn or their profits, they will then be lacking. They will be in need. And therefore, they don't trust. But if we're rich in God, if we, God is, his good pleasure is to give us his kingdom, we know that we're valuable to him. He will provide what we need. He knows what we need. Why should we be fear to be generous with what we have? And that find that and be joyous and rejoice in the ability to give to others. And since all of this, he ends this passage here in 33 and 34, talking about where your treasure is, there your heart all will be also. The last point here is, therefore, treasure his kingdom. His inference here, his conclusion here is that treasure his kingdom. Where your heart is, 
For what you treasure is where your heart is. Unlike the barns, God's treasure will never fail. Moths will not corrupt. Thieves will not break in and steal. They'll break and steal profit from a barn or storehouse. Unused food and unused profit will decay and mold and fail. But God's treasures never fail. They never rust. They never decay. They're never stolen. Think about that for a second. Your adoption in Christ will never be taken from you. Your righteousness in Christ will never be taken from you. The Holy Spirit that's been given to you will never be taken from you. Your eternal life will never be taken from you. Your place in God's family and in his kingdom will never be taken from you. The treasures of God's kingdom are better and more valuable. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Therefore, based off all of this, treasure his kingdom above the treasures of the world. And how do you know where your heart is? How do you know you're treasuring God's treasures and treasuring his kingdom? There's a few different things you can ask yourself. Is, are you generous? If you are, if you're slow to be generous with others, that means you're trusting in the things of this world and you're trusting in what you have and you fear the, the loss of what you have. And you're not free in your giving. You're not thankful as well. If you're thankless, if you're not full of thankfulness, you're thinking that, you're, that you are the reason why you have what you have. But if you recognize that all that you have is by God's providence and by his love and care, then you're more thankful. You're also, if you, if you show humility, if you show humbleness, that you're dependent on God for everything, and that you trust him to provide, and that you don't trust in yourself, and you don't trust in the things that you own, in your profits, in your gains, in your abundance. You're humble, and you don't boast in what you've earned. You don't boast in what you obtain. You don't boast in your treasures and your accomplishments. You recognize that God is the one who's provided it. And the other thing is worship. If you're consumed with anxiety, you obviously do not trust God. You don't think God is good because he's basically withheld things from you. And it's prevented you from worshiping God freely to accredit God with who you are and what you have. Because if you prize his treasures, if you prize the, the treasures of God's kingdom, you would worship him for the righteousness that you have and the identity you have in Christ and care little for the possessions of the world. You know, I wanted to bring it back to this at, at the end here, is the garden, a return to the garden of Eden. What do we remember about the garden of Eden? That Adam and Eve, God had given them everything that they needed. They had no need for worry or for lack of anything that they needed. And the lie of Satan was is that they were lacking, that God didn't provide everything that they needed. Therefore, they had to work for this fulfillment, for this satisfaction, for this contentment and rest. To eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then they would have rest. They would be like God. And that is the lie today. We, can we really afford the treasures of just God's kingdom? Can we afford to live that way? Can we take that risk? Isn't it about, about what I can earn and what I can obtain? Isn't that the path to comfort? Isn't that the path to comfort for my soul? So I want to, that is the intuition. Our intuition is to, we can't afford to simply just trust in God. We have to trust in ourselves. I want to end with this. The lie of Satan to our culture is the world is what you make it. But the world is not worth it. The wealth of this world is not worth your soul. Seek the kingdom of God. And he will bring comfort to your soul. He will remove your anxiety. He will take care of you. He'll provide for you. You don't need the wealth of the world. You don't need the abundance of the world to bring peace to your soul.
Trust in Christ. Seek his kingdom. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word and how it challenges us, Lord, to seek your kingdom and not seek the treasures of this world. Lord, change our hearts, Lord. Change our hearts to trust in you. Change our hearts, Lord, to seek your kingdom above all else. Change our hearts, Lord. But that our treasure would be in heaven and not on earth. And Lord, that we, Lord, would trust you through all circumstances, Lord. Not being anxious about food or clothing or anything, Lord. But knowing, Lord, that you know what we need and you will provide it. Lord, remind us of that truth. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.
so much for joining us for our service today. We hope that you were encouraged, that you were edified uh, through the teaching of God's word, singing of praises today. As we conclude, I want to give you just a parting word of encouragement through our benediction today. So church, be encouraged as we go forward. Grant us, Lord God, the vision of your kingdom, forgiveness and new life, and the stirring of your spirit, so that we may share your vision, proclaim your love, and change this world in the name of Christ. Amen. Go now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you. Cool, man.